0: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hey, hey, you know the drill. Before we get started, I'm going to urge you, urge you? Is that too strong? I'm going to nudge you into listening to this episode via Vodacast. Vodacast is like whatever app you use to listen to podcasts right now, with the exception that it allows podcast producers like me to insert bonus content, images, articles, etc. directly into the episode at the appropriate times. During this episode, I'll point out a couple of times where you can nom that content. So if you'd like, and if you're not driving currently, go ahead and download the Vodacast app on Google Play or the App Store. Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. The story begins in November 1360. But it also begins sometime in 1865. And again in the early 1970s. And then 1986. And 1998. The story begins so many times that it's probably easier for us to begin with where instead. The story begins on the Isle of Wight. In its pagan history, it's an island of dragons and brownies, dryads and fairy folk. When Christianity first came to the island, it walked similarly spooky steps. Legend says that the first Christians to build a church there in the 7th century chose the bottom of a high hill and began bringing the stones to the site. Once they had placed them in the shape of the church's foundation, they retired for the night. When they awoke the next morning, the stones were gone. Soon the villagers found them, in the same shape as they'd been left, but now at the top of the hill. Over the course of the day, they returned them to their original place, but in the morning, the stones had once again somehow been transported to the top of the hill. Again, they returned them to position, and again they went to bed, This time, however, guards were posted to watch over the building site. At midnight, they watched on, astonished, as the stones began to rumble and sway, and then roll their way once more up to the top of the hill of their own volition. The village elders apparently took the hint and called for the church to be built where the stones preferred. The village took shape around the church called God's Hill, while the original, rejected site, was understood to be cursed and took the name Devil's Acre. St. Boniface's Down, an 800-foot-tall chalk hill on the southeast shore, is crowned by what is supposed to be an honest-to-God wishing well. When ships passed by the well, they lowered their topsails. If one could climb to it from the south without looking back, the well, or St. Boniface himself, would grant their wish. In 1545, a French invasion force attempted the climb, only to be picked off one by one by the Isle of Wight militia's archers. Besides the Christian myths and the pagan myths, there are the more... ecumenical myths, by which I mostly mean the hauntings. Among supernatural aficionados, or at least among the travel agents and chambers of commerce who cater to supernatural aficionados, the Isle of Wight is known as Ghost Island. The creme de la creme of Ghost Island is the Knighton Gorges, a grand manor house west of Queen's Bower. One of the first owners of Knighton Gorges was Hugh de Morville, a knight most infamously known for helping to murder Archbishop of Canterbury Thomas Beckett, ridding Henry II of that turbulent priest in 1170. After the assassination, Morville fled court and hid at Knighton Gorges, until his suspicion that the house was cursed drove him out. In 1340, Sir Theobald Russell died in the house from wounds he received defending the island against the French. His widow, Lady Gorges, followed him shortly after, reportedly expiring from a broken heart in the same room. In 1565, Anthony Dillington rebuilt the house, leaving only a few of the original rooms standing including the one in which the two had died. Engraved over the archway were the words The Room of Tears, from which people said music was often heard to emanate. On July 7th, 1721, Sir Tristram Dillington shot himself on the grounds, either because of gambling debts or else his wife's death from smallpox, depending on the source. Either way, suicide was an unacceptable end for Dillington, not only because it was a mortal sin that would have kept him from entering heaven, but also because it would have meant turning over the estate to the crown. So, when Dillington's steward discovered his body, he tied it to a horse and drove the animal into a nearby pond, so that the family could say he had drowned accidentally and keep hold of Knighton Gorges. Every year on the anniversary of his demise, a spectral Tristram Dillington can be seen riding a phantom horse towards the pond, or you know, so the story goes. What truly elevates Knighton Gorges above the countless other supposedly haunted houses on White, though, is that the house itself is a sort of ghost. It hasn't actually stood since 1821, when it was intentionally burnt to the ground. At least that's what everyone says. It's not at all clear who would have raised it or why. Regardless, there is no manor house at Nighting and Gorges, and hasn't been for two centuries now. All that's left is the large stone gate, blocking entrance to an empty tree-topped hill. That hasn't stopped many people over the years from seeing the manor house of Gorges, including travel writer Ethel Hargrove, who wrote that on New Year's Eve 1915, she and a friend not only watched the house fade into ethereal view, but then play host to a party with 18th century revelers, coaches, and a spectral soprano singing late into the night within the manor's non-existent walls. This, by the way, is The Constant, uh, History of Getting Things Wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. If you haven't guessed it yet, this is our annual Halloween episode. In the holiday spirit, I try to tell different kinds of stories from what we normally tackle on this show. Stranger stories. And less credible ones. And this here is no different. But this is not a ghost story. Or a pagan myth. Or a Christian miracle. It's something altogether... Weirder. It's a story that begins in 1360... But it also begins sometime in 1865, and again in the early 1970s, and then 1986 and 1998. It begins so many times that it's probably best to choose the most dramatic beginning. June 13th, 1831. The Day of the Eclipse. Today's episode, Lucy Lightfoot. The sun went dark over the Isle of Wight at 11.10 in the morning and stayed that way for the better part of an hour. Not long before the eclipse arrived, a tremendous thunderstorm had swooped in from the west. It was a bad omen, if you were the superstitious type, and if you couldn't tell by now, the Islanders of Wight were. Once the storm had lifted and the eclipse had passed, that thinking was vindicated. For a start, lightning had struck a number of farms and fires burnt throughout the day, Fields that weren't ablaze were flooded instead, animals were spooked, crops were ruined, roads were impassable. The only good news was that at least no one was hurt. Maybe. A couple of hours after the chaos abated, a farmer named George Brewster noticed a horse tied up to the gate of St. Olaf Church in the village of Gatcombe. The animal was upset, clopping and whinnying, perhaps like it was spooked or else tired of waiting. George Brewster walked through the gate, up the dirt path, and into St. Olaf. The church was empty. The horse's owner wasn't in St. Olaf. And she wasn't anywhere else, either. Lucy Lightfoot is described as vivacious and romantic in spirits, a fearless horsewoman, and a dark beauty. Just 17 years old, she was on her way from Bochum to Chillerton Green the morning of the eclipse to see a friend, Marjorie Breathwaite, when she stopped in at St. Olaf. Gatcombe is one of those abundantly singular English hamlets, totally unplanned, unrenovated, and unremarkably unique, just like so many others. Like, for instance, Bochum or Chillerton Green. If I name enough of them, I might manage to offend someone. Each one has its own piece of history, as locally fascinating as it is globally insignificant. In Gatcombe, that piece is the Church of St. Olaf. Originally, it was built as a chapel for the estate of the Esther family. In 1066, when William the Conqueror stomped the Anglo-Saxons at the Battle of Hastings, Hugh de Esther came along with him and was rewarded by William with some of the first Norman land rights on the Isle of Wight, along with his brothers Roger, Nigel, and Gervase. In the 13th century, the Esters built a manor house, and along with it, the chapel that would eventually become St. Olaf. Aside from its impressive age, there isn't a whole lot to set St. Olaf apart from all the other abundantly singular small Anglican churches in all the other abundantly singular English hamlets. It's beautiful, no doubt, ancient stones piled high for the steeple, old smoky timbers for the roof, pre-Raphaelite stained glass depictions of the crucifixion, all Remarkably well done, beautifully constructed, just like so many others. The thing that sets St. Olaf truly apart is the effigy. You can see a picture of it on the Vodacast app right now. In the north corner, there lies a man, the likeness of a man anyway, carved from ancient oak, dark and warm. He lies on his side, his legs crossed below the knee, decked in armor. A wooden shield rests along the top of his shoulder, down his arm, and past his waist and in his other hand he holds a wooden dagger well today he does at least the effigy was made in honor of edward esther of the esther family a knight of the order of the sword who returned long ago from the holy land injured and enfeebled the wooden form of sir edward esther is so simple so elegant His hand gives only the impression of fingers. A faint relief portrays the armor and sash. Just a few swooping lines and circles make up his entire face. The effigy could just as easily belong to any of the tens of thousands of abundantly singular Christian soldiers who marched off in any of the abundantly singular crusades. But this one was Edward Esther. And to Lucy Lightfoot, he was a man apart. So the legend says Lucy Lightfoot could have had any man on the island, except for that the only one she wanted was the good knight Edward, who had died some 400 years before she was born. The Lightfoots were farmers and regular parishioners in St. Olives, Lucy more regular than her parents, since nearly every time she passed within the pole of the church, she found herself diverted, sitting beside the oaken image of Sir Edward Esther. When asked why she spent so much time not at the church, but there with the effigy, she is said to have answered, I love to be with him and accompany him on his adventures in my thoughts and dreams. The things people did before Netflix. Passing from her home in Bokham to Chillerton Green to visit Marjorie Breathwaite on the morning of June 13th, 1831, put Lucy Lightfoot on a direct course through Gatcombe, so she had stopped, as she always stopped, to spend a little time first with Edward Esther. She tied up her horse to the gate and made her way inside. Then came the storm, and then came the eclipse, and when both had passed over, George Brewster went looking inside St. Olaf's church for the owner of the spooked horse out front, and found no one. No one, but not nothing. The inside of St. Olive's showed no signs of foul play, no struggle or fight, and nothing was missing, with one curious exception. Up until that morning, so the rector at St. Olaf said, the wooden dagger in the wooden hand of Sir Edward Esther had been steel, with a precious lodestone set just above its hilt. But now the steel dagger was shattered into fragments, and the lodestone was missing, along with Lucy Lightfoot neither one was ever seen again. You know what that is? it's the sound of another sale on shopify the all-in-one commerce platform to start run and grow your business shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses so upstarts startups and established businesses alike can sell everywhere synchronize online and in-person sales and effortlessly stay informed scaling your business is a journey of endless possibility I love how Shopify has the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe. Shopify powers over 1.7 million businesses from first sale to full scale. Reach customers online and across social networks with an ever growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. Gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond more than a store shopify grows with you this is possibility powered by shopify go to shopify.com theconstant the constant all lowercase for a free 14-day trial and get full access to shopify's entire suite of features grow your business with shopify today go to shopify.com slash the constant right now shopify.com slash the constant On April 5th, 1360, Peter was crowned the King of Jerusalem. He wasn't the only one. Louis I of Anjou had also been crowned the King of Jerusalem, but with another crown. Seigneur of England also had a weak claim, though he never expressed it. Frederick the Bitten had named himself King of Jerusalem too, but nobody much listened to him in any way. He died in 1323. What all these potential kings of Jerusalem had in common was that none of them had ever been there. The kingdom of Jerusalem had been set up by Godfrey of Bouillon at the end of the First Crusade in 1099, and for a hundred years, Christians, mostly French Christians, ruled over it. Then Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, decided it was enough of that and ran them out of town in 1187. After Saladin, the Christians named Tyre the new capital of the kingdom of Jerusalem, because the kingdom of Jerusalem no longer contained the city of Jerusalem. Then, al-Sharaf Khalil took control of Tyre too, and the Christian presence in the Levant was reduced to control over just one city, Acre, which they continued calling the kingdom of Jerusalem as if no one would notice. In May of 1291, they lost Acre too, and the now purely conceptual kingdom of Jerusalem was relocated to the island of Cyprus. Peter actually became the real king of Cyprus in 1359, and then had himself crowned the theoretical king of the non-existent kingdom of Jerusalem the next year, a title he shared with at least three others. But Peter wanted more than to be able to say he was the king of Jerusalem. He wanted it for serious. He organized raids along the coast of Asia Minor, and was able to temporarily take control of the Anatolian Beylik, but he wanted more. He wanted Jerusalem, damn it! He traveled to Europe, visiting with the kings of Austria, Hungary, not Austria-Hungary, yet, Denmark, Pomerania, Bavaria, France, England, and Scotland in an attempt to organize a new crusade to retake the Holy Land for Christendom. By then, the leaders of Christendom were all crusaded out, though, and refused. It was too late for King Peter to back down, though. All his raiding and sieging had weakened his military and pissed off his enemies, and word was that Egypt was ready to invade Cyprus. The only thing to do was to hit Egypt first, but he still needed an army to do that. He knew he could count on the Knights of the Order of St. John on the island of Rhodes, which also called itself the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but that wouldn't be enough. So he offered European soldiers that followed him to Egypt knighthood in his own order, which he'd made up the Order of the Sword. Among those who found this enticement irresistible was the one, the only, Edward Esther of the Isle of Wight. In October of 1365, the newly knighted Sir Edward Esther joined King Peter in Rhodes, With an army 165 ships deep, they attacked Alexandria. The siege was a big, yet qualified, success. The city fell, the crusaders filled their pockets, and Peter pointed them all onwards towards Cairo. But most of his men refused. They weren't interested in reestablishing the kingdom of Jerusalem, or reinstalling Peter as the king thereof, or even in Christianity triumphing in the region. They had just wanted the money, and they had plenty of it in Alexandria. After three days burning and stealing and raping and killing, they'd had their fill and were ready to head home. Peter stayed until the very end. He didn't leave the city until the Mamluk soldiers were already inside the gates, hoping that maybe, just maybe, his men would change their minds. But they didn't. So King Peter I's Alexandrian crusade ended just 72 hours after it had begun. Peter kept trying. He attempted to siege Damascus, but the Venetian army talked him out of it. Then he managed to sack Tripoli, but was unable to hold it. He whiplashed back and forth between the Levant, which he kept attacking, and Europe, which he kept asking for help in his attacks. During all the time he was away, his wife, Eleanor of Aragon, started boinking a member of his court, John of Morph. The court convened to consider whether they should be charged with adultery, but either the court didn't believe the accusations, or else they just liked Eleanor and John better than they liked Peter, and so they dropped the matter. Enraged, Peter began lashing out at his regents and his brothers, John and James, who eventually conspired to have him assassinated ironically while in the arms of his mistress on January 17, 1369. But enough about Peter I, non-king of Jerusalem, what about Edward Esther? Well, he stayed on with Peter after Alexandria and during the failed attack on Damascus was cracked over the head and seriously wounded. He eventually was returned to Gatcom four months later, invalid and barely verbal. When he died, he was cast in effigy, his legs crossed as a sign that he had touched the Holy Land, reclined for all time with his shield and dagger, at the feet of which Lucy Lightfoot had pined for her oaken knight. Edward Esther remembered nothing of his time in Alexandria, or his time in Cyprus, or Rhodes, or anything else before his wound. But there is more to say than what Edward Esther couldn't. Towards the end of his life, Guillaume de Machaut, the premier French poet and composer of the 14th century, wrote The Capture of Alexandria. In an impossibly frustrating section, Machaut talks about the foreign knights employed by Peter, and promises to name each and every one of them. But that section of the poem, which might prove Esther's involvement, is missing. Luckily, a little later in the poem, while describing one of Peter's subsequent battles in Syria, Mashau manages to very briefly immortalize our fair knight. But as they did not retreat, nor fail to succor Lord Esther, so had they victory and honor. Okay, so that's the battle. Esther was injured, according to the poem, on March 1st, 1367. We know he eventually must have made it back to England, as the story says, in order to get his effigy and burial at St. Olave's. But other than that, nothing was in the record. Until 1865. Now hold on a second! We've begun the story in 1831, when Lucy Lightfoot disappeared amid the eclipse and storm. And we've begun the story in 1360, when Peter was named King of Jerusalem. We can begin it a third time now, in 1865, but that won't make sense of anything, so instead we should probably fast forward to the early 1970s, when things began to come together, just for a moment, and then we'll move backwards a ways. It was in the early 1970s that James Evans, then the rector of St. Olives, put this story together, It's from him that we get all the stuff about Lucy, and he's the one who put everything else in place. He found all the important 14th century bits, and he pointed out the other description of Sir Edward Esther, besides Michaud's. It was discovered, Evan said, by a Methodist minister on the Silly Isles named Reverend Samuel Trelawney in 1865. Trelawney was fascinated by the Crusades, and in his fascination stumbled upon a manuscript written by Philippe de Meziers. And I promise... This will be the last link in the chain. Philippe de Meziers was a crusader who fought in the Battle of Smyrna in 1346 and for his valor was knighted there. Soon after, he met none other than Peter, the soon-to-be subjunctive king of Jerusalem. When Peter was crowned king of Cyprus and announced his intention to reclaim the Holy Land, he had a friend in Philippe de Meziers. He accompanied Peter on his tour of Europe and helped him, unsuccessfully, sway the kings there to launch the next crusade. When King Peter returned to Cyprus, Philippe and his mentor, the Catholic legate Peter Thomas, stayed behind to tour the continent, gathering knights for the Alexandrian siege. After the siege, he kept on with Peter until the king's brotherly bedtime assassination, after which Philippe headed to Paris. There he wrote a number of treaties and books, devotionals, religious allegories, arguments for war crusades, an autobiography, and a number of letters from throughout his life and career. One of those letters was his account of those he enlisted from England to fight alongside King Peter. But that letter was lost. Until... 1865. In the early 1970s, Rector James Evans, via Reverend Trelawney in 1865, put the whole sordid ordeal into one incredible story. In Philippe's description of the English Knights, via Trelawney, via Evans, there is an Edward Esther from the Isle of Wight who traveled to Rhodes, then on to Alexandria, then Syria where he was wounded, enfeebled, and returned to England. But the astounding part, Evans realized, was his traveling companion, who came along to Rhodes and planned to accompany him all the way until she was convinced by Peter himself to stay behind in Cyprus for her beloved knight's return. She came, said Philippe, from Carisbrook Castle, which would later be known as Bochum. Her name you might by now have guessed, was Lucy Lightfoot. The Constant is brought to you by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive, and UCI-DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. Not to mention that there's a strong argument to be made for self-betterment being the point of life. UCI-DCE has been serving lifelong learners and skills development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credit towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis, and non-formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive, relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. Go to ce.uci.edu slash learn now to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. Quick quiz. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelphelp.com slash the constant. Let’s put it all together now. On June 13, 1831, at 11:10 in the morning, the sun went dark over the Isle of Wight, and 17-year-old Lucy Lightfoot disappeared forever, never to be seen again. But only in the linear sense, because in 1865, Reverend Trelawney discovered writings by Philippe de Mezier, which put her by the side of Sir Edward Esther in 1364. Esther went off to war in Alexandria, suffered a traumatic brain injury, and was eventually returned to White, lacking either memory of or ability to communicate about Lucy Lightfoot. According to James Evans, rector at St. Olaf's Church, who figured things out in the early 1970s, Lucy waited for Edward, presumably either in Cyprus or Rhodes, for three years. Perhaps having heard a rumor of his death, she eventually gave up hope and married a Corsican fisherman named Leonolo Morolino, with whom she lived for the rest of her life, growing fruit trees and helping him with his catch. She died and was buried there in the town of Bastia at the Church of St. John, which is, no offense to all you Gatcomians out there, a much cooler church than St. Olive. Evan's account is not clear about the providence of Lucy's epilogue. He only mentions the manuscript of Philippe de Mezier as discovered by Reverend Trelawney at Silly, but I don't quite see how Philippe would have been privy to the details of her life after both he, Edward, and King Peter shoved off to the Levant. Maybe Evans had access to this information via his position at St. Olaf, but that too seems curious considering there's nothing in Lucy's post-Edward life that suggests she or anything about her got transmitted back home. James Evans also wasn't shy about sharing his interpretation of these events. Towards the end of his writing, he succinctly names the story's main question, and tiptoes way out on thin ice with a possible answer. He asks, So how could it be that Lucy entered the church in 1831 and vanished, only to reappear in 1364? It has been suggested that in the four-dimensional space-time continuum in which we live, matter itself is a kind of kink in the time-space manifold, and where kinks occur, space is distorted, and even so-called time itself becomes curiously mixed up. These kinks become very much accentuated when there is a sudden escalation of forces and could explain why a unique tropical storm with its vast discharges of natural forces, a total eclipse with outpouring of radiation from sunspot effects, an adventurous lady passionately longing for adventure with her loved one, all triggered by a disintegrating lodestone letting off enormous magnetism, could explain the mystery. (laughs) Skeptical? Gosh, I hope so. But this is a Halloween episode, so detach your jaw and swallow that volleyball of incredulity with me for just a moment. What Reverend Evans is more or less describing here is what is popularly called a time slip. Mark Twain popularized the idea in his 1889 novel A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. If you haven't read it, the title pretty well gives away the gist. The narrative conceit of a character accidentally or inexplicably falling into another time has been fairly widespread ever since. I imagine a lot of you have already thought of Outlander when hearing about Lucy Lightfoot. But there are also plenty of cases of real people who claim to have experienced their own non fictional time slips. In 1979, Two British couples, Jeff and Pauline Simpson, and Len and Cynthia Gisby, were driving through France on their way to a Spanish vacation when they decided to stop for the night at a hotel in Montalmar. The first one they came to, however, was full up for the night, so they hopped back in their car and started looking for another. After a long drive down a cobblestone street, they came to an inn. The inn was slightly curious for sure. The windows were just wooden shutters without glass, and there were no telephones, no plastic, not even pillows. The hotel didn't have a menu, just serving up steak, eggs, and beer, which the friends gobbled down and then went to bed. In the morning, when they came down for breakfast, things were even weirder. There was a woman wearing a silk evening gown and a policeman in a bizarrely old-fashioned uniform. When they went to check out, they were surprised to find that their bill, for two rooms and two meals, was just 19 francs, about $4 American. Figuring it was a happy mix-up, though, they paid and got out fast. On their way back home, they decided to try to stay at the inn again, only to find that it was gone. They couldn't locate it, or the street that it was on. Four years later, they returned to Montalemar for the express purpose of locating the inn, and still were unable. They never found it again, but were able to match the police uniform to one worn by cops in 1905. A disconcerting number of people have claimed to fall into the 1950s while walking on Bold Street in Liverpool. The most infamous claim of a time slip comes from Charlotte Anne Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. On August 10, 1901, they went on a tour of Versailles, got lost, and allegedly ended up on August 10, 1792, with Marie Antoinette. What made Moberly and Jourdain's experience so sensational was that, well, for starters, they published a book about it. But for two, they were both seemingly, again, for emphasis, seemingly credible sources. At the time of the incident, Moberly was the principal of St. Hugh's College and Jourdain her assistant and eventually vice principal. They seemingly did a lot of research and seemingly blinded themselves to one another's accounts of events to seemingly avoid contaminating their recollections. There are two twists on the Versailles time slip, and you never want twists on your slip. The first is that according to Philippe Julien's 1965 biography of Robert de Montesquieu, the French symbolist, poet, and insuppressible eccentric, used to throw period costume parties at Versailles, which Moberly and Jourdain could easily have stumbled accidentally onto. The other twist is that all of those things they seemingly were and did, they weren't and didn't. Our old pal Brian Dunning did an episode of Skeptoid about what he calls the Versailles time slip back in 2011, in which he adroitly goes down the line of the adventure from the first telling through the publication of the adventure, and then down the various editions thereof, and shows convincingly that Moberly and Jourdain didn't just fail in avoiding contaminating their recollections, they contaminated them with incredible regularity and stupendous effect. At each juncture, the story becomes further and further embellished. Indeed, the first time the women got together to compare notes, they only remarked upon some minor details. A woman shaking a cloth out a window, some formally dressed gardeners, and a creepy dude at a kiosk. But by the final version, Marie Antoinette isn't just there, but she gets a whole chapter of her own, told from her point of view, as she notices two queerly dressed strangers on the grounds. You can read the transcript to that episode via the Vodacast app right now. So, what about Lucy Lightfoot? Could she have experienced a time slip of a higher order that not only deposited her into the past, but also left her there? Well, no. <laughs> of course not. This, as I've said, is a Halloween episode. And typically during the Halloween episodes, I play a little loose with things. But typically, I do it for a purpose. So here's the deal I know exactly what happened to Lucy Lightfoot, and I'll tell you in a few minutes. But before I do, let me argue, not for the first time and not for the last, that even if I didn't know any more than I've already expressed to you, you should still absolutely not believe Lucy Lightfoot slipped through time. What I'm going to argue is a little different from regular skepticism, the most famous expression of which comes from Carl Sagan, who said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's a good mantra, but we're going further back than Sagan to philosopher David Hume. Back in 1748, David Hume made a similar argument to Sagan's that we should proportion our confidence on any matter of fact to the strength of the evidence. But Hume wouldn't have called the Lucy Lightfoot story extraordinary. He'd have called it a miracle. Oh, here's a link on the Vodacast app right now. According to Hume, a miracle is a violation of natural law. And according to Hume, a natural law is something about which we have extensive and exceptionless experience. Like, say, that all known things travel through time linearly and forwards. That is about as sure a thing as we could possibly come up with, right? So, to jump through time backwards is to violate natural law. It requires a miracle. What Hume has to say about these miracles is one of my favorite things anyone has ever said. I'm going to create an analogy for him that he didn't actually use here, but I think it'll help us get there quickly. Imagine a set of scales. The scales of credulity, we could call them if we're feeling annoyingly cocksure today. On the scales of credulity, we can set rival possibilities, throw on the evidence, and see which have more weight. So, if there's an extraordinary claim on one side, it'll need extraordinary evidence on the other. But, when it comes to miracles, Hume says, there is nothing out there that can balance the scales. Because a miracle is a violation of natural law, the impossible made possible, there is no kind of evidence out there that can justify its existence. Eyewitness testimony? Eyewitnesses are wrong all the time. They're mistaken, they recall incorrectly, they even lie. Any sort of experimental measurement that appears to give an impossible result has to have that impossibility weighed against the possibility of error. Even in the simplest and surest experiment, the chance of a flub will always be greater than the chance of the impossible. Even if you see a thing yourself, well, (laughs) we're wrong about seeing stuff all the time, aren't we? Now, not everybody out there likes Hume's argument on miracles as much as I do. They point out that Hume's definition of natural law isn't just vague, but presumptuous. Just because you or I or everyone has never seen a thing happen, doesn't mean it doesn't happen, right? So how can you know whether something is truly a miracle or just an unknown joint in the awesomely expansive machine of natural law? Fair. But here's the trick. Hume's argument doesn't really have anything to say about whether miracles occur, whether Lucy Lightfoot did fall through time. His argument is about whether we should believe she did. Knowing only what I've told you so far, you could admit not knowing for sure whether a 17-year-old girl in a stormy eclipse broke a lodestone and traveled to 1364, but you must conclude that she didn't anyway, because the evidence available to you asks that you weigh the, here's that word again, seemingly impossible, a time slip, against the vast scope of possible explanations. Maybe the records are flawed or fabricated. Maybe there just so happened to be two 17-year-old women in the history of the Isle of Wight who just so happened to both be in love with Edward Esther and just so happened to mysteriously appear and disappear at times that made it seem like they had been one. Far-fetched? Absolutely! But far-fetched, no matter how fetch you far it, is still infinitely more likely than impossible. As long as there is an explanation that doesn't require the suspension of the laws of physics, that explanation is better than the one that does. By a lot. So, when it comes to miracles, says Hume, we should never believe in them. Even if they do happen. You don't have to be happy with that. For instance, if I had nothing more to tell you about Lucy Lightfoot, you might be tempted to say, well, at least the time slip is an explanation, because we're primed to better believe a complete story than an incomplete conjecture, even when we shouldn't. And we shouldn't! That's the point! I shouldn't have to tell you anything more about Lucy Lightfoot. You have all that you need to come to a conclusion. It didn't happen because it couldn't. So let's just end our story here, okay? No? All right, fine. We'll keep going. We can already be confident that Lucy Lightfoot didn't slip through time. But just for shits and giggles, let's go ahead and tell you what did happen to Lucy Lightfoot. Nothing. There are at least two separate people who managed to get to the bottom of the story of Lucy Lightfoot and Edward Esther. Michael Steer and Mark Whiteman. Both of them accomplished this feat through the very tricky act of writing to ask about it, and both of them received in response letters from none other than Reverend James Evans, by that point, former rector at St. Olaf's Church. On November 22, 1978, he gave this reply to Michael Steer. In my history guide, I wrote that the Church of St. Olaf was built as a private chapel to the Esther family who came to the island in the 13th century. They came from Normandy, and because they must have had strong links with Norway, they named the church after the patron saint of Norway, namely St. Olaf. Master Baldwin de Insula was the first of the parish priests at Gatcombe in 1294, followed by Master John de Popetone in 1301. The wooden life-sized effigy of a crusader to the left of the altar, I named him in the story I wrote as Edward Esther whom I considered to have gone to the First Crusade as the figure had his legs crossed over indicative of those who went to the Holy Land and arrived at Jerusalem. Near Gatcombe House stands Sheep Manor, which has been identified with areas entering the estuet and Sowet in the Domesday book. In a document of 1346, it appears as a possession of the Cistercian Abbey of Quar in Binstead, Isle of Wight. After the dissolution, it passed to the overlords of Gatcombe and was sold in the 16th century to the Uri family, and in 1871 to Charles Seely Esquire, with Gatcombe House. Gatcombe House was held under Edward the Confessor by three brothers in equal shares. At the Doomsday Survey, it was the property of William, son of Sturr, and subsequently passed by marriage from the Sturs to the Lyles, and was further conferred by co to the Dudleys and Packerums. Today, Sir Robert Horbart is the present owner of Gatcombe House, His ancestor, Lord Hobart, then Great Britain's secretary for the colonies under Queen Victoria, gave the capital of Tasmania its name in 1804. Some of these facts may be of interest to you. There is a local branch of the genealogical society on the island. Probably one of the members may be able to give you further information of the Esther family. That's it? Oh, no, that's not very satisfying at all, is it? Well, trust me. The letter written to Mark Whiteman in 1987 is much more so. By the time Whiteman wrote to Ask Evans about Lucy Lightfoot, he'd already uncovered some telling clues. For a start, he had visited St. Olive and inspected the effigy. From what he could tell, it looked as if the wooden dagger was carved from the same piece of wood as the knight and couldn't have been crafted later as a replacement for this mysterious lodestone-encrusted steel one. He also had the good sense to look up whether there had been a solar eclipse on June 3rd, 1831 on the Isle of Wight, and wouldn't you know it, there had not been. What he probably didn't know, but that I do, is that no one other than James Evans seems to have ever set eyes on Philippe de Mezieres' manuscript, which Reverend Samuel Trollainy, or Trollany discovered in the Sillies in 1865. What's more, there doesn't seem to have ever been a Reverend Samuel Trelawney in the Sillies or elsewhere. And in the same sense, there doesn't seem to have ever been a Lucy Lightfoot in Bochum either. Not in 1831 and not in 1364. Reverend James Evans made it all up. There was nothing mischievous about it. The locals knew that Evans was a colorful character, and that he was as interested in the history of the island as he was prone to spinning silly stories. Sometimes he even did both at the same time. When he published the story of Lucy Lightfoot in a local newsletter, it was just one of a series of fanciful tales he made up about the church in an effort to entertain and entice his parishioners. None of them took it seriously. But here's what seems to have happened, as best as I can put it together. A travel writer in the mid to late 70s got hold of that newsletter, not knowing Evans or his tendencies, and credulously rewrote his story into a national magazine with a few it is saids in place of good reporting. That 200-word article caught the attention of another writer, who embellished it in another form and another and another. I can't track the whole chain of ridiculousness except to say that by 1986, author Brian Innes, author of such above-reproach scientific tomes as Where Was Atlantis? Horoscopes, How to Draw and Interpret Them? and Unsolved Mysteries, Giant Human-Like Beasts, was writing an extremely delicious detailed and dubious article on Lucy for the unexplained magazine. Or I mean, the magazine, the unexplained. The magazine itself was not unexplained, although I like that concept. Pitch me at constantpodcast.com slash contact. Hell, in 2015, The Guardian wrote about Lucy. To their credit, they did give away the real explanation, but only briefly, and not until the penultimate graph of the story. I hope that's not what I'm doing here. Anyway. As Reverend Evans wrote to Mark Whiteman in 1987, little did I think when I wrote the story of Lucy Lightfoot that I had given her invisible wings to fly to many places and to speed down the years. I must admit that the crusaders to be found in the church, but I have taken the few white bones of history and covered them with flesh of imaginative history. To show his style, Evans enclosed in his letter to Whiteman another story he had written about those darkened timbers in the church roof, which were, in the newsletter, said to be from a ship at the Battle of Trafalgar, which led to a buried treasure on the island. Good fun for the people of Gatcombe. And it's only by an act of providence that this ruse, too, didn't travel along with Lucy Lightfoot... Answer Edward Esther, beyond the Isle of Wight, to Cyprus, and Rhodes, and Alexandria, to travel magazines, and unknown magazines, and the Guardian newspaper, and all around the world, not just into the past, but the future we all now inhabit, the gullible, gullible future. Music for today's episode by Epidemic Sound. If you'd like to support the making of this show and get access to the secret feed, go to patreon.com theconstant to sign up. Our website, which could use some sprucing up, but I'm still tuckered from all the longitude, is constantpodcast.com. The Constant is currently rated 4.8 stars on Apple Podcasts, which shows up pictorially as four and a half stars. It is an injustice for which I will stand no longer. Please go and rate us five stars now to help nudge the universe back towards its correct positioning. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Open Source, a show about arts, ideas, and politics. This week, Christopher Lydon talks to journalist Chris Hedges about prison and playwriting. Listen at RadioOpenSource.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois... Where in 1937, Scottish-born American soccer player Willie McLean vanished without a trace? This has been The Constant.